This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Today, we're going to cover a really important topic in emergency medicine, caring for our geriatric patients. And our expert is my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Christensen. She's an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, and she completed a fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine. Jen, you are one of my favorite docs to talk to just because you have so much expertise in what we're going to talk about today, and that is geriatric emergency medicine. Now, I'm a general EM physician, and I see older patients all the time, and I hope I'm doing an okay job of taking care of them. Why do we talk about a separate specialty of geriatric emergency medicine? What does that mean? Thanks, Sarah. I'm really glad to be here and talk about this. Um, When we talk about taking care of older adults, we all feel like this is something that's a core part of our emergency medicine practice. We're doing it day in and day out. Um, I think we all acknowledge, too, that older adults are becoming an increasing uh, percentage of the patients that we're seeing in our daily practice. Um, We know data is telling us that adults are aging um, and and really the fastest growing rate um, of growing patient population over age 65 currently. And we're seeing maybe as much as one in six patients right now in the emergency department are over 65. Um, Within the next 20 to 30 years, it's going to probably grow to one in five, maybe even more. And so we're always thinking about how we improve care for these patients, how we include them in improvements and workflows in the emergency department. We acknowledge, too, that they often require more complex care potentially more time-consuming care, um, more resources, whether that's testing, um, nursing, and other staff resources, more time spent coordinating with specialists, with family, um, more um, involvement, perhaps, in other specialists, and longer lengths of stay, ultimately. um, That can also involve more expensive care, and they're more likely to discharge to other locations other than home. So it's a big issue to be thinking about across our practice in general. And I think as emergency physicians, we always are looking at ways that we can improve care for our patients. That's why we've developed other specializations in pediatrics or toxicology, for instance. Um, I think as emergency physicians, we want to see problems and address them within the healthcare system. So the first emergency medicine geriatric specialist started evolving probably around the mid-2000s, I understand. I think in places like New York and Michigan were some of the first programs to kind of formalize training in this area, and it's continued to grow since then. And thankfully, in the last few years, UC Davis has been a part of that growth, um, and we have our own fellowship program, as well as a hospital-wide initiative to improve care for our older adults. Yeah, so you actually completed this Jerry EM fellowship. Tell me a little bit more about that. What does that entail, and what do you gain from extra time studying geriatrics? Doing geriatric emergency medicine fellowship is all about um, partnering with the other team players in our health system that take care of older adults. So for me, I had particular interest in geriatric trauma care, so I spent time with our SICU service, particularly focused on the older adults there. Um, That means working with outpatient clinics. That means working with palliative care. Um, Even our pharmacy colleagues run a special complex pharmacy clinic at our hospital. 
Um, so being able to see how they operate and what resources they have and how they might be able to connect with patients that we've previously seen in the ED. It was all a really successful learning experience. So what projects and improvements are ongoing at UC Davis right now or things that you've worked on in the past? What has been most successful? There are, thankfully, a lot of projects ongoing at UC Davis, and so many of them have been um, involving multiple specialties and multiple health team players. Um, I like to think of geriatric emergency medicine not only as challenging us all to be better at the medicine that we do for all of our patients, but also it's a team-based sport at the end of the day. And so what that means is there's been programs where we've worked with the School of Nursing, for instance, um, on education programs where we've had cross-teaching between nursing and medicine, um, working at the hospital level. Um, thankfully, hospital leadership has been actively involved. And of course, our own Dr. Katrin Tyler has been a huge impetus in emphasizing care of older adults and working on the Healthy Aging Initiative across our hospital. And so that's really prioritized a lot of programs that have benefited the emergency department patients as well as all older patients in the health system. There's a newer uh, clinic for healthy aging that can do uh, multimodal care, including looking at cognitive issues, polypharmacy, mobility problems. We have the pharmacy clinic I mentioned earlier for complex uh, medical pharmacologic management, basically, for patients. Um, we have specialized nurses that we've started uh, in our emergency department in the last couple of years called our genie nurses, who are geriatric nurse specialists. They are a just absolute lifesaver in terms of trying to address all of those pieces that we know we want to connect our older patients with, but we have trouble doing that as individual cl clinicians. That could be screening for cognitive problems, gait issues, connecting to resources, facilitating um, a whole team of players, including PTOT um, and outpatient services and case management, in order to mobilize all of those resources for these individual patients as they come through. I've particularly been working on um, an education uh, model for medical students. Um, so that's something that we've been doing the last, uh, we're going on three years now in the spring to help prepare medical students who are leaving their medical school training, possibly with a limited introduction to geriatric care, but um, maybe not a lot of formalized education there. And it's a bit of a quick boot camp before they go off into residency to help prepare them. Um, so that's something I'm particularly excited about and want to continue growing and expanding. And we have future plans, um, you know, to keep that moving and becoming an even kind of bigger piece of the medical school education. There's so many other roles, too. We have so many team players across uh, nursing, our social workers, our case managers, our pharmacists, all actively involved. And so it really comes back again to that, that idea of team-based sport, because everybody's working on these different areas. And overall, the product is that it makes healthy aging care better for all of our patients. Yeah, that's awesome. I have loved the genie nurses. I feel like they sort of pop up out of nowhere sometimes and they're, oh, I just saw your patient in Delta 5. And, you know, well, they'll tell me a little bit about what they screen for and some things that they can help with. And I, I love it. I think it's wonderful. Tell me, like I said, I'm a general EM doc. And I feel like sometimes when I've talked with you or some of our other Jerry specialists, I'm actually sort of surprised about things that I don't think about or things I might have missed. What are some pointers for a general EM physician on your next shift? What are things you should look out for in these patients? 
Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I could probably go on for hours about this topic. <laughs> but I think some of the the high-level things that I'd really emphasize that I think I see come up on a regular basis for myself and my colleagues would be identifying and treating pain better in older adults, and that's more thoughtful use of medication. That's considering, too, that an older adult might look different when they're experiencing pain. They might share their pain with us differently and acknowledging that difference. And at the end of the day, I think talking to the patient and or the loved one um, that might be helping give us history to understand, is there a painful condition and how we might best address it? Or do they even want it addressed? Obviously, it can be a little more nuanced with an older adult trying to take into account whenever we're treating any condition, what are the important drug-drug interactions or drug-disease interactions or simply the drug-patient interactions, if you will, to consider when you're going to be picking a treatment plan. I think something that's really helpful that I try to, you know, spread knowledge about as much as possible is using alternative um, pain treatments like topicals, for instance, um, for that patient coming in with back or hip pain. You know, do your appropriate workup. Make sure you've ruled out the badness, of course. But if it comes down to symptom control, really considering can you utilize something like a lidocaine patch, lidocaine gel, diclofenac NSAID gel, um, these other modalities to help the patient with their symptoms without causing much harm in terms of side effects, the way giving a bunch of systemic medications could be harmful. That also means emphasizing use of things like ice packs, heating pads, stretching, physical therapy early um, can be really helpful. And other pieces like using um, nerve blocks, for instance, to help with pain control. That was another really important initiative in our hospital, um, helping patients with hip fractures get onto a really early and aggressive pain control strategy that limits opioid use by giving them a fascia iliaca compartment block, for instance. It's a great technique that's readily available for EM providers with a little bit of training and a little bit of knowledge, and it can provide really good pain control for a patient, and it helps limit opioids and decrease the risk of delirium, which what's better than that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to come to delirium because I feel like this is something we deal with a lot in the ED, um, especially in some of our older patients who are having some cognitive decline. How do we recognize delirium? And then also, what are some um, helpful ways for, for treating these patients in the ED? That's such a great question. I um, can't emphasize enough gathering collateral in these patients that demonstrate some degree of cognitive impairment. Sometimes we're not sure what's acute versus chronic. Sometimes it's a combination of both. There's so much power in getting a really good history from a caregiver if one's available. So really make that effort. Make it early. The second you walk out of the room, try to get the information because it can direct everything that you're doing. Um, Secondly, I think thinking of cognitive dysfunction in terms of brain failure almost the way you would think of kidney failure or heart failure, I think is a really good way to conceptualize it that will help all of us to better identify and label it. In this model, dementia would be chronic brain failure. Chronic, it's progressive, it's a brain dysfunction. We can think of it almost like CKD, right? It's important history that we want to know about and we want to know what does the baseline run? What's the baseline creatinine? What's the baseline mental function like? Um, And then we can think of delirium as acute brain failure, Obviously, we always want to do our workup. We want to make sure we're identifying um, quickly reversible causes of altered mentation like hypoglycemia or an intracranial hemorrhage. Obviously, we're going to do that workup. If we're not finding those things and we are satisfying those definitions of delirium, acute onset, fluctuating course, not otherwise explained, 
um, by a medical problem, we're probably looking at delirium. We should label it. We should communicate that with our care team. I think it helps people to understand that that patient that's acting out in bed seven or maybe being inappropriate to nursing or otherwise being difficult has a severe medical problem with an associated morbidity and mortality that is causing that behavior to happen. And so I think that can really help everyone to get on the same page treating it. Now, of course, treating delirium is always a challenge. I think number one, number two, and number three steps in treating delirium is to try to prevent it whenever we can. And I think we're notoriously bad at this, perhaps, in the emergency department setting where we have 24-7 bright fluorescent bulbs, um, crazy loud noise constantly. Um, I don't know about other people's shops, but I think we have like four windows total, perhaps. Um, and those are only in the trauma bay. So trying to do what you can to, to reduce delirium risk in the first place is really helpful. Um, identify it and look for it whenever you can. And, and remember, when we see those agitated delirium patients, those are the ones that we all go, aha, I know what that is. And we get really, you know, worked up about treating them, which is really important to, to prevent, you know, harm to themselves or others, et cetera. But for every one of those, there's, you know, possibly 90 other that are probably hypoactive delirium. Quiet, they're subdued, they're almost sedate. Um, and we have to remember that's also delirium, and that's, in fact, the more common presentation. And so when we have that really quiet 80-year-old in the hallway bed who's not making a peep or anything about their abdominal pain, it might actually be that they're delirious, and we're just not identifying it as that. For that agitated delirium patient that we all recognize, what is your go-to uh, medication or your go-to treatment for those patients? Such a common question that comes up. We're all, I think, very challenged by this. At the end of the day, sometimes we really are forced into that corner where we need to do something acute to get a patient under control so they don't harm themselves by accident or, um, you know, stop really important medical care from happening. Certainly try all the non-pharmacologic things that you can. Appropriate daylight, um, treat pain, treat constipation, relieve urinary retention. All of these things are steps, you know, 1 through 20. Um, frequently reorient them, put familiar faces in the room with them if you can, um, familiar objects. Make sure that they have their visual aids or their hearing aids as necessary. But once you've done all that and you're just at that point, there are pharmacologic options. Um, none of them are a stellar option, perhaps, but if a patient can take an oral, perhaps they tend to have sundowning issues at night, and you have enough time and kind of pre-planning, something like an oral Seroquel in a low dose can be a great option. If you don't have that sort of time, low dose, um, and I mean very low <laughs> uh, doses of something like Zyprexa or Haldol, and we're talking like Haldol 0.5 to 1 milligram IM, for instance. This isn't the 20-year-old um, acutely agitated schizophrenia patient that you're going to give 5 IM to. At the end of the day, there's still risk, though. There's still increased morbidity and mortality using these medications. But I think if that patient's at a danger of hurting themselves, this is the better option. One caveat with the medications used for agitation, um, you do want to avoid the antipsychotic class in patients with movement disorder. So Parkinson's or like Lewy body dementia, for instance. That's the one time that you would avoid those because they can worsen the movement problems. Yeah, those are the really tough patients. I definitely appreciate your insight there. And 
mentioning some of those things, I mean, especially in the era of COVID, not seeing those familiar faces and not having those things from home, I mean, it feels like that's probably even more difficult right now. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit more also about your work with trauma patients. What are some things we should be specifically aware of in our older trauma patients? These are the trauma patients that can get extra complex, if you will. I always would ask myself, seeing these trauma patients, is this truly kind of the isolated trauma presentation that we're so used to dealing with in younger adults, where they come in, you know, by ambulance from a motor vehicle collision or, you know, a a bad boating accident or something on the river, where it's probably just isolated. Trauma is the primary process that you're dealing with. A lot of these older adults are coming in and they're having primarily trauma, but complicated by their ongoing medical conditions, um, complicated by medications they're on. Um, Or they might primarily be having a medical event that resulted in trauma or looked like trauma. For instance, the patient that syncopizes and now they've had a fall, so they present as perhaps a trauma patient, (laughs) depending on how your shop operates. So that comes up a lot. And so I think always we need to think of those two workups and treatment plans in parallel. They're simultaneous, they're interacting, and they both have to be addressed. Um, Beyond that, you know, as we're working with these trauma patients, I think sometimes we have to remember why do we do some of the interventions that we do. Something like a C-caller, maybe a younger person can tolerate dealing with a C-caller for a prolonged period of time and not have too much negative repercussion. Um, But we have to remind ourselves, like an older adult, they might not be able to lay flat. They might not feel like they can breathe adequately. It might be really, really anxiety-inducing for them or even cause them breathing problems to be laying flat in a C-collar prolongedly. Of course, you can get pressure ulcers um, and skin breakdown, which are going to be much more likely in your older adult, especially if they suffer from any frailty or malnourishment, much higher risk. So if I don't have high, high degree of suspicion, sometimes I don't always force my patient to stay strictly in a C-collar. Sometimes I angle their bed up a little bit to work with them and just keep from preventing secondary harms of some of the things that we're doing. Other pieces that I try to keep in mind, um, we like to throw around the term mechanical fall, mechanical ground level fall a lot. We hear this probably every shift, right? I know you're not in agreement right now. <laughs> I, I've heard people start talking about it differently, and I'm totally on board, and I think this is the better approach. When we're talking about patients and we say, oh, we think it's a mechanical ground level fall, I think what we're really getting at is we think it's not syncope. And so I think this language, I really want to promote this language as talking about a non-syncopal fall. Because at the end of the day, mechanical ground level falls probably oversimplifying things. It's very rare that it's a perfectly fine situation. The person's doing absolutely stellar, no issues at all, and then they just trip over a flower pot. That certainly comes up. That's fine, and that happens, and that's a mechanical ground level fall. I'm all about it. But the rest of the time, probably what is happening for a lot of our older adults is they've been a little overdiuresed on their water pill. Their heart failure is a little bit out of whack. Their electrolytes are a little different than normal. There's a UTI or some other infection happening. There's some other process usually, and then that's on top of the fact that they already have peripheral neuropathy at baseline. They have a shaggy rug in their house, you know, external factors like that. Um, It was late at night, and because of the water pill they're on, they're having to get up and urinate way more frequently than normal. And so now what you really have is a bunch of smaller factors that have come together and built into this mountain that now is causing the fall in the patient. 
And so I think we always want to remember that there probably are other factors going on. And those are things that we should be looking for, things that we should be addressing. And we don't want to simplify it so much that we're not paying attention to that. Jen, these are all such amazing points. This is such good stuff. I really appreciate it. Anything else we haven't talked about that you want to cover? Oh, my goodness. There's a million things. Um, I guess my final tips, if I can leave them with you and the audience, are when you're thinking about medications in older adults, start low and go slowly. Or some people like to say the half and half approach, do half as much medication at half as frequent dosing is another way to look at it. Um, That keeps you out of trouble most of the time. I would emphasize, too, um, even in the emergency department setting, we should be less afraid of de-prescribing. There is such a tendency to do these prescribing cycles or cascades, if you will, where medications just keep getting added and no one ever wants to take them away. And we're probably seeing a huge percentage of older adults presenting with side effects from medications as, as really the primary cause of their issue. Um, but we're not really taking medications away very often. If you feel uncomfortable with taking something away, there's certainly times where I say, absolutely, I know for sure this medicine needs to go away. I feel confident. I will make that change. I'll call the pharmacy and cancel it sometimes if need be so that they don't accidentally continue it. Other times, I think it still is really helpful to consult with a pharmacist if you have access to that resource. Consult with a resource like Beer's Criteria for potentially inappropriate medications in the elderly. Um, Even just write on their discharge paperwork and tell them in their discharge, I'm worried about this medication possibly causing you harm or side effects. I want you to review this with your doctor at your follow-up visit. I think that can be really helpful to help start thinking about why we're using some of these meds in older adults when maybe they're really not indicated anymore or there's an alternative, a better way to do it. Um, The other thing I would say, and this comes up in the ED all the time, is be skeptical of that UA that maybe looks like a UTI. We have to remember there's a lot of asymptomatic bacteria in older adults. And in some studies, even I think I've seen up to 80-something percent in institutionalized older females, it's asymptomatic bacteria, colonization, et cetera. It's not really a pathologic UTI. So we have to be careful of that. I think on the one hand, we want to be stewards of antibiotics and potentially not overtreat things that aren't really a pathologic infection. But on the flip side, I think with my ER hat on, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not missing something dangerous to my patient. And so I don't want to hang my hat on that dirty-looking UA for that altered vomiting older patient when, in fact, they have ascending cholangitis. And if I stop at the urine, I'm not going to find that other problem that was really the primary problem to begin with. So absolutely check your urine. Check a urine, strongly consider whether you think that's truly the cause, but don't don't avoid the CT head or the other workup because the urine has some white cells in there or some bacteria. Yeah, all great points. And, you know, with the polypharmacy as well, these are the patients where I find myself calling their PCPs if I can. I mean, one of the things about our older population is that most of them, I mean, they should be able to get plugged in through Medicare. And so most of them do have a primary care physician. And if it's during business hours, I have a very low threshold to touch base with their primary care docs if I'm going to be discharging them to make sure that we're on the same page. Absolutely, Sarah. I love that. 
A huge thanks to Dr. Christensen for sharing her knowledge with us. I hope you all got as much out of this as I did. And if you have any questions or comments, hit us up on social media at Impulse Podcast or shoot us an email at eimpulsepodcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please hop over to iTunes and leave us a review. We appreciate your feedback and it helps our podcast reach more people. Thank you as always to our Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis and to Orlando Magana at OM Productions. Catch you next time. Thank you.